0: I think what is demonstrated to me is the power of love. I think it'd be a whole different thing if my husband didn't recognize us or didn't know me or know my kids. But in spite of all this, like in spite of all his disabilities, he, he always recognizes me. He always recognizes our kids even even though they've grown, they look very different from when they were 15 and 18. So there are some deep embedded emotions and memories there that, that don't go away. And so he's always happy to see the kids, and he can recognize their voices on the phone. And he, he's always like happy to see me. From Life Atelier, it's real. Stories of
1: adversity, resilience, creativity, and transformation. I'm Diane McDaniel and on today's show, I'm speaking with Cynthia Lim. Cynthia is author of the forthcoming memoir, Wherever You Are, which chronicles her journey after her husband of 20 years suffered a cardiac arrest resulting in brain injury. Cynthia talks about the challenges she faced to help her husband achieve a good quality of life, which she misses from the relationship they experienced prior to his disability and her determination to maintain normalcy for their sons. She also talks about how writing has helped her to understand her experience and also how painful it was to reread her journals as she wrote her memoir. Thanks, Cynthia, for coming and talking with me today. Thank you for inviting me. Well, to get started, I'd like for you to introduce yourself and tell us something that you like people to know about you.
0: My name is Cynthia Lim. I recently retired from the Los Angeles Unified School District, and my days are now free from work and caregiving and you know all these things that I used to do. So I'm finding a lot of freedom these days to discover a new life. All right, so let's let's get started. In
1: 2003, your husband of 20 years suffered a cardiac arrest and subsequent anoxic brain injury. Could you tell us about your husband prior
0: to his illness and about him now? Yeah, so my husband was a really fun guy before his brain injury. He loved the outdoors. He loved to tell jokes. He had me laughing all the time he worked really hard he played really hard so he he was an attorney at a big firm in downtown los angeles but that wasn't just his existence because he loved the outdoors he loved to fish he had a boat in the marina and he loved to plan family vacations so he was just this kind of happy cheerful fun loving guy Hmm. So since his brain injury, he's lost a lot of his short-term memory. So he won't remember what day it is or what time it is or, you know, what year it is. But his long-term memory is intact. So he always remembers me. He always remembers our kids. We have two sons. And he's always delighted to see us. Physically, he needs care, full-time care. He, I have a caregiver with him when I'm not with him. His balance is a little bit off, so he needs to walk with either a walker or we push him in a wheelchair. And he's got some severe cognitive impairments, so he doesn't really initiate conversation, but if you ask him a question, he'll answer. It won't be an in-depth conversation, but he is aware of everything that's happening around Mm. him. Mm -hmm. So he he takes everything in. He just can't initiate conversation
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is that the part that is most difficult for you that loss of kind of the fun person who was initiating
0: yes the conversation is what I miss the most is you know we used to have these really in-depth conversations but he's actually still this very cheery and happy person I mean in spite of his disability He's, he's always happy. So that's a blessing in a way. Yeah, yeah. So that part of his personality, the sort of ease uh, remained. Yeah. And he still likes jokes. So when you tell jokes, he laughs very heartily. He's just not telling them now. But mm-hmm. yeah, he still has this capacity to experience joy and love in the world, which is phenomenal.
1: Yeah, that's definitely something to be thankful for. So let's go back to when he first had this cardiac arrest and the subsequent brain injury. Uh, when you think back to that acute time, what are your reflections on how you got yourselves and yourself and your teenage sons through that? Where did you get strength to help you?
0: You know, when I think back on that time, I, I, I wonder how we got through it because it was such a, a nightmare. We were vacationing in Portland. So we weren't even at home. So we're in this city that's not our own. We're navigating, you know, intensive care. He was in a coma for 10 days. I was trying to get him back to Los Angeles just so that I could get back to something familiar and get him back to something familiar. So it was just, it was such a blur. I I don't even know how we got through those days. It was, uh, it was, we just kind of muddled through it. Are you okay with saying how
1: it it happened? Did, did did something happen in
0: order to make him go into cardiac arrest? Or did it just no. happen out of the blue? It just happened out of the blue. Mm. Yeah, it was a complete surprise. Mm. So, you know, we were in this hotel room and we were waiting. Our kids, we, we'd have flown in ahead of time and our kids were going to join us because we were going to a family bar mitzvah. So we were waiting in our hotel room to pick up our kids at Midnight, I think they were coming in on a flight at midnight, and um, he stopped breathing. And, you know, I was just panicked. I didn't know what to do. And the paramedics came, and, and they were finally able to revive him because we all, you know, we tried CPR, and nothing worked. And they used a defibrillator.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow,
0: that's, that's so, it's so intense
1: and frightening to think about.
0: Yeah, so our, our kids at the time, our, my oldest son was eighteen. He'd just graduated from high school. Our youngest was fifteen. And so I, I think at the time I just knew I had to be strong for them because I, you know, I didn't want to lose it all in front of them. Which at one point or another or another we all did lose it, you know. But I, I felt like I I didn't want this experience to define their lives. So, afterwards that summer, um, my oldest son said he wanted to defer college for a year because he was scheduled to go to college in New York in the fall. Mm -hmm. And I said, No, I I don't want you to do that. I want you to go on with your life because I didn't want this to define our existence. Like, I didn't want them to go through life marked that, you know, this horrible thing happened to us and now we can't do what we want. Mm -hmm. So I really wanted them and I wanted us to just go on with this really nice life that we had built together. You know, my husband and I had been together since undergraduate school and we were poor students together. We were VISTA volunteers, you know, after college and we went through some really lean times during graduate school. So I felt like we had built this really rich life and I didn't want to let that go. Mm Mm-hmm. Right for for your your sons, and for yourself, I imagine, and for him too, for my husband. I mean, he'd work so hard for this life. It's like I, I was going to make sure that I got him the best care and the you know the best he could get under mm-hmm. these horrible circumstances. Right.
1: So if we come up to the present, your the the events that you were just talking about happened fifteen years ago how have you learned to adjust and cope during this this time and what have been some of the events that have acquired you to relearn how to cope with the loss
0: i think the hardest part for me was med- was the medical community just navigating that whole medical interventions and figuring out what he needed because what i learned and i think everybody that goes through some kind of catastrophic illness learns this is that there's nobody there that, that kind of guides you as to what's the best treatment or where do you go in brain injury especially the you know the conventional wisdom is that after a year if they, if they haven't shown progress, then they're not going to progress any further. So insurance stops paying after a year. It stops paying for what, like a... a therapies, therapy? Any, you know, anything. Therapies, uh, sp- like speech, physical, uh, occupational therapy. Nobody pays for caregiving. Mm-hmm. So what I learned, you know, for us, it was less than a year, and insurance stopped paying. This That, that was like the end of any kind of physical therapy or speech therapy, and... I was stuck. I was like, "Well, what happens now? Like, what am I supposed to do with him now?" He was in a rehabilitation hospital for about three or four months. So when he came home, you know, he had these these therapies that, that these people that came to our house, and then after about four months, they stopped paying because they said that he had plateaued. Mm-hmm. So I was stuck. I was wondering, like, "Well, what happens now? Do I? Does he just?" sit at home in front of the TV every day. What do I do? So I had to like go out and just find things in the community. Like I found this great program at Santa Monica College for acquired brain injury. So he goes there like four days a week. There are all these classes that he takes there. There's a speech class, a computer class, but that it took a while to find that. Mm -hmm. You know, there there wasn't like a guidebook that said, (laughs) look at these programs. And so I, and I looked at, hospitals and other community programs there was something through the stroke association that i found but it was a lot of like advocacy and just work you know to to explore all these places check them out and at the same time i was working full time and taking care of my son it was that was a huge huge learning curve
1: Mm yeah
0: yeah so I think too, during that time, work really saved me because it was this alternative universe that I could go to where brain injury wasn't a part of it. And I could just go to work and concentrate on something entirely different and not have my identity tied to, I have a brain-injured husband, I, you know, I I need full-time care at home, and and, and that sort of thing. So it was kind of a really good way to get my mind off of my plight.
1: Right, right. What are some of the other times where you've had to readjust how you've been coping? You know, I'm thinking about life events that we have, kids moving on, uh, you talked about retiring. Have, have those been moments when you've had to kind of readjust um, how you're
0: just managing your life? Yeah, I, I think... It, you know, it just played out so differently than what we had envisioned when we had kids, like our kids going away to college. It was really sad when my oldest son went to college because my husband was still on a rehabilitation hospital. So he, you know, he wasn't able to come with us. I, at that point, I didn't even know what he would be like when he came home from the hospital. So my oldest son went to New York. I, my, I flew out there with him with our younger son and my husband was in this rehab hospital out in Pomona and it was such a a torn experience, you know, feeling like I needed to be there with my husband but at the same time I really needed to be in New York to see my son off, so that was probably the hardest one.
1: Mm.
0: When my younger son went away to college, he went to Maine, which is like, you know, the other corner of of the nation. That was a little bit easier because I, I felt like for him it, it was a good escape for him because he had been with me this whole time through high school, mm-hmm. caregiving with my husband. For him, it, it was like this gift of freedom that he was able to go to college and not worry about us at home. So that was really that was really difficult. But I, I think what I learned is that I tried so hard to just kind of maintain our regular life like you know my husband loves the outdoors we would take trips up to mammoth and instead of backpacking we would do day day hikes just so that we could be you know near a mountain lake and he could feel the mountain air still Mm -hmm. or we would travel still like you know get him on a plane and we went to new york we went to maine we'd go out to the bay area to visit my family i was determined like that we weren't just going to sit at home I right. feel sorry for ourselves like where, where we were gonna make the best of this
1: right you tried to have a semblance of the life that you'd had previously but with some adjustments yeah
0: yeah yeah <laughs> some major, <laughs> major adjustments, adjustments. Yeah.
1: <laughs> what have you struggled with most during this whole journey as you look back to, from the that moment that this happened to to the present time what's sort
0: of been the the consistent theme of what's been most difficult for you? The most difficult is the loss of my personal freedom. It's, it's something that you just, you take for granted, you know, that you could just get up and go to the store because there's no milk in the house. Mm-hmm. But I can't do that. I could do that if I, you know, drag my husband with me in the car and, you know, we struggled, you know, into the store with his walker and that sort of thing. Or I have somebody that's that stays with him. So every moment away, I am responsible for making sure that there's somebody there, right to take care of him. So through the years, you know, it's been almost fifteen years now. Uh, and we've had the same caregiver for ten years now. Mm. and he's a wonderful, wonderful caregiver, and I'm so grateful to him because I can leave the house and I can travel, actually, on my own. And uh, know that he's really well taken care of at home. So I'm really, really grateful for that. But it's, it's that loss of personal freedom that, you know, people, you don't think about it until it's gone, that, you know, you, you can't just walk outside and take a walk around the block, or I can't, you know, without knowing that there's somebody there to take care of him.
1: Right, right. And I bet even when you have your caregiver there, there's just that kind of part of your brain that's aware of it
0: yeah it's that extra antenna you always have like uh Mm -hmm. is he okay are things happening okay you know is anything gonna go wrong right yeah
1: yeah definitely so let's talk a little bit about your writing you have a blog called my writing life that you've kept for the past few years can you talk about the genesis of
0: the blog and and when you started writing Sure. I started writing in about 2007-2008. I took a writer studio out of uh, UCLA Extension with Barbara Abercrombie. From that writer studio, I met a group of writers, and we formed a monthly writer's group, and we've been meeting probably for almost 10 years now every month. Hmm. We workshop pieces. And so that's really been the impetus to write my book and to maintain my blog, because... You know, when you have somebody coming over every month, the expectation is you're gonna have a piece to read and workshop, you have to write. So (laughs) (laughs) it's been wonderful. And what I really learned from all those workshops and the writing group is that there's the story and then there's the craft of telling the story. And that's what my writer's group and these workshops have really taught me is that, you know, everybody has a story. It's how you tell it and the the craft in writing it and making it compelling for readers. I started this blog because I, I wanted to kind of write about reflections of caregiving in everyday life with brain injury, but I didn't want it to be one of these, like a medical thing of, you know, this happened and then this procedure, and then this is where he is medically because that's not so interesting. I think what's interesting is how do people make meaning of their lives and how do they go on day by day when they have this burden or when they have to be a caregiver? You know, what does that mean and what does it do to your life and where do you find joy?
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely. Talk a little bit about the craft. What are some of the things that, that you do in terms of, of shaping the story that
0: you're telling? I I think you just have to have a lot of emotional truth in it. So, uh, I, the first draft of my book, I, I hired a, a book editor, this wonderful, wonderful book coach, Jenny Nash, who went through my book and she, she said, you know, the first draft, I had written a lot about what happened to my husband. Like, mm-hmm. you know, all the, the medical events and that sort of thing. And she said, you know, that, those parts are really flat. The things that came alive is when you talked about what happened to you. And so this book really has to be about what happened to you? because you know, nobody's that interested in like these medical events. And so that you know I, I I rewrote the entire book and I cut out huge parts of this is what happened to him, or you know, this is what happened at this hospital, and really focused on what what effect did that have on me, and how did I process it?
1: Mm-hmm. The emotional story,
0: yeah, yeah, your journey, right.
1: Yeah, right. And so what's the relationship between the blog and and the novel which I want to talk about in a moment? How do how do you use the the blog and how does it relate to the novel? The blog is just
0: really kind of short pieces that whatever strikes me, they're just kind of my current reflections. They're like 500 words or less, you know, each posting. So it's like a short flash essay mm-hmm. whereas in the book you know there are are chapters and and that some of them have been published as standalone essays those are longer pieces mm-hmm. you know about 1500 2000 words per essay so those are kind of longer reflective pieces and the 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 blog is just more you know like this is this is what happened to me today Right, right. Tell us a little bit about the
1: book. I know it's coming out in September. Can you just uh, talk about the, the story that
0: you're telling there? Sure. It's a, it's, it's a memoir. The title is uh, Wherever You Are. It's being published by Coffee Town Press, and the publication date is September 1st. It's really about my journey. I mean, it starts with the incident. It starts with the cardiac arrest in Portland, and then kind of takes us through this whole period of, you know, what happened afterwards and how I found medical interventions and then what it meant to me and how I had to maintain, try to maintain our normal life and and what I went through. And it talks about, you know, the things that people say to you when these horrible things happen. Like, you know, somebody said, well, you know, God doesn't give you any more than you can handle. And that made me feel really bad, you know? I was like, why would you say that? (laughs) So, it is really about how I was able to navigate the world after this happened and how I managed to maintain a semblance of a normal life. Right.
1: Did you discover anything in the writing about yourself or, or your experience that you that were sort of revelatory to you that you didn't understand
0: before you started writing? Well, you know, I've been keeping a journal since I, I've been in, in... My eighth grade teacher made his journal every single day, and it got me into this habit, like through high school, I would just journal, you know, whenever I was feeling bad or, you know, I needed to release something. And so I, I journaled during this whole thing when it happened. And a lot of it was just kind of muddled thoughts, you know, as they happened to me. So it was interesting to read through those journals, especially during that acute time and, and think, like, what what was I doing and how did I get through that? Mm-hmm. And I think maybe the journals kind of helped me get through that because, you know, I wrote down things that I don't even remember. And I wrote down things that I was feeling that I can't recall now. So in writing the memoir about that time, it was really painful because you had to go back and relive those moments because you had to make it, um, you know, I had to, I had to live through those emotions again to put it on paper so that readers could understand what that pain was like. Mm -hmm. A lot of times people ask, well, was it cathartic, you know, to write about this experience? My answer is no, it was really painful because you had to go back to that place mm-hmm. and you had to relive it. Yeah. You, know, you talked about some of the things
1: that people say when a catastrophe happens. And I was wondering, what have you learned about how you talk to people
0: when something horrible happens? You know, I think a lot of times you, you, you want that person to respond to you. Right. So like when this happened, like when I was in, when we were in Portland and we finally made it home, I had all these phone messages uh, from people and I, and I know they all meant well. and, And, and I was very, very grateful for all these calls, but there were, there were some where people would just say, call me. And I was thinking, you know, I can't even put my socks on in the morning. I can't even barely function. And, you know, to demand me to call you was just it just seemed really callous to me so Mm
1: -hmm.
0: now when you know when I encounter people that are going through grief or or some kind of catastrophic event I send them a card because that's that's what really touched me all the cards that I got from people and just the way that they conveyed their thoughts Mm. and not demanding that I call them back or acknowledge that I got their card you know, just know that that in those times you get you get the message and you're comforted by it, and don't demand anything of the mm-hmm. person. You know, to like write you a thank you or or acknowledge it. Just just know that it was received and it was received well. Right. You you learned some lessons going through this kind of experience
1: that seem sort of obvious in hindsight, but you might not have known it at the, you know, before it happened, right?
0: Yeah, actually, one of the most comforting things was a woman that came up to me and said, you know, I, I'm i so sorry that this happened to you. I just know that I, I think about you all the time. And that was kind of the perfect thing to say because it wasn't like, you know, you get these people after something like this happens, they, they come up to you and they go, tell me what happened. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh no, please don't don't make me relive this. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I don't want to, I don't want to go there. Right. That was just so perfect just say, I, I heard what happened. I'm sorry. I, I'm thinking of you. And that was, that's perfect. That's a perfect thing to say. Right. Just to leave it there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted just to, to touch on your sons who are now grown men with their own lives. What have they told you about how they've understood and coped with what happened to their father? I think
0: it's made them much stronger men. Uh, My youngest just turned 30 last month, and I was really struck by this. He said, you know, I'm 30 now, so half of my life has been with brain injury and half of my life has been without, and I was really struck by that because I I feel like it, it made me feel really sad. Hmm. but he's, he's such a strong person now because he, he was with me during that whole time. He was in high school when my husband came home and we were just trying to figure out like what is our life now and how do we live with disability. He's, he's just a, a really strong, strong person. Hmm. My oldest son, you know, he, he would have went to college right when this happened, so he wasn't home during that really difficult time. Whenever he comes home, he is so good with my husband. He's so attentive, and he's always trying to get him to talk or to write or to draw, because my older son's an artist. And so he just he taps into this part of my husband that I don't think I have the capacity to do. Hmm. He came up with this great idea of taking our family pictures and making them into jigsaw puzzles. <laughs> My husband loves putting those together because they're jigsaw puzzles of me and the kids, you know, in settings that he likes, you know, in the outdoors and stuff. So it's just a a great idea. My sons are like the most resilient people I know. They've become really strong because of this. And we don't really talk about life before Mm. that much. I think there is, you know, this collective sorrow that's always there that we don't really need to talk about. We just acknowledge that it's there. And then we just try to make the best of what we have now. Uh, Because my oldest son would always say, you know, there's no use in crying about what happened or, or going there and being all sad. He said, this is our reality. We just have to move forward. Yeah. Coming back to you,
1: what are some of the most impactful lasting effects on you of going through this traumatic event and living with your husband for the past 15 years? How has your outlook changed?
0: I think what is demonstrated to me is the power of love, because it, I think it'd be a whole different thing if my husband didn't recognize us or didn't know me or know my kids. But in spite of all this like in spite of all his disabilities he always he always recognizes me he always recognizes our kids even even though they've grown they look very different from when they were 15 and 18 so there are some deep embedded emotions and memories there that that don't go away mm-hmm. and so he's always happy to see the kids and he can recognize their voices on the phone and he he's always like happy to see me. Since I've retired, the, this is kind of a, the, the nice thing about this is, when I was working, I would leave the house at 7 in the morning, and he'd be asleep. I'd come home at 7 at night, so I missed a huge chunk of his day. And now, you know that I'm retired, we get up around 8, 8.30, and I'm there every morning when he wakes up. And uh, this one morning, he was really smiley and happy when he woke up. And so I said, what are you so happy about mm-hmm. and he looked at me he goes you Aww. so you know it's kind of nice that we can that i could see him more i do have a caregiver that comes every day from about eight thirty to 5 every day he takes them to his classes at santa monica college and they go out for walks and and so he comes home around five in the afternoon I have these huge chunks of time to myself, which I've never had before, mm-hmm. ever in my life. Like there's always been, you know, some demand, you know, when, they, when the kids were younger, it was, you know, taking care of the kids or working. And then when I was working, it was like, you know, all consuming. So it's really nice to have this free time. I, like, I, it, it, I feel like a kid in a candy store. It's like, wow, I have all this time. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah.
1: There's so much loss in what happened to you and your husband. And of course, it's important to acknowledge the loss. But anybody who's gone through a devastating event knows sometimes there can also be some gains in going through difficulty. What are some of the things that you've gained by going through this experience?
0: I think I've learned that you can't go through this alone that, you know, you need people and you need to ask for help when you need it. That was one of the hardest things that I learned because, you know, I, was, I always felt like, oh, I'm the strong person. I can do all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But really, you, you can't, and you can't do it all by yourself. I, I've had the the wonderful support for my family. I have a, a big family, lots of siblings. Um, for my husband's family, he, he's very close to his sister, and she's been a, a great source of support. And... I have these great friends across the street that uh, you know our kids are the same age and we've been friends for like thirty something years now. They've just been the most wonderful source of support. Ever since this happened, he's they they've always treated my husband as if nothing has happened. They treat him like he's not disabled, mm-hmm. and I think that's so important: is to surround yourself with those kinds of people that kind of give you energy and support. As opposed to the people that kind of take it away, mm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: so I've just been overwhelmed by the amount of support that I get because I, I I couldn't do this all by myself. you know i I need this whole community behind me to help me. And even when I was working, I had close friends there that were my main source of support. right, right. That community coming together,
1: certainly. to wrap up, I just wanted to ask you. If you could send a message to your younger self at any age,
0: your choice, what would it be? I think to just stop worrying so much. You know, when I was young, I worried so much about career and work and, you know, how I was going to make my mark in this world. And it just happens. I, I wish I didn't worry about it so much and just enjoyed it while it happened. But again, I guess that's true of everything, right? You can't you don't fully enjoy it until it's over. So I guess just stop worrying so much.
1: right, Be more in the moment.: Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much, Cynthia, for, for coming in and, and talking with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you That's it for today's episode. Thank you, Cynthia. For speaking with me about your journey of the last 15 years since your husband's brain injury. If you haven't yet, subscribe to Real with Diane McDaniel wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please tell your friends about it and ask them to subscribe. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know why you listened and what you like about The Real Podcast. Please rate the show and leave a review on iTunes. Follow Real on Facebook at Real with Diane McDaniel and on Twitter at RealThePodcast. Reach us at RealthePodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Diane McDaniel. Thanks for listening.